expecting to find? What is it that you came expecting to hear this morning? What is it that you came to do this morning? And some of you probably think, well, gosh, he doesn't know. Why is he asking me? <laughs> but you know, one of the things about our service at Christmas and Easter is that we think we know what the preacher is going to talk about. Here it is, Easter morning, the greatest day in the life of the church. The day when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the preacher is asking us why we came and what it is that we expect to find here this morning. But that's exactly what was happening 2,000 years ago on the first Easter morning. You see, the people in our gospel lesson this morning didn't know it was the first Easter. All they knew for sure was that it was the first day of the week. And in verse 1 it says that it was early on the first day of the week. What was that day really? Well, it was the first day of the Jewish work week. Well, they didn't get off to celebrate Easter. It was the day in which most of the people in Jerusalem were attempting to get back to normal after a particularly bloody weekend. But there was nothing normal about this day. And it never would be normal again. John tells us that Mary came to the tomb while it's still dark. And Mary was literally in the dark. And what was it she found in the darkness that early morning? An empty tomb. And she made the only reasonable assumption she could make. Someone had come and taken Jesus' body out of the tomb. This was the first of a number of miscalculations and incorrect assumptions that would be made in that first Easter morning. Mary Magdalene sees that the stone has been rolled away. The body is missing and she draws the only logical conclusion to be had. And she runs to tell the disciples what she's discovered. Now, we don't know if the other, any of the other disciples came to the tomb to see for themselves or not. We only are told that Peter and John were there. But they, too, drew the wrong conclusion. Now, you and I know what happened that day. We have the advantage of knowing what we can only assume they should have known. But those first-hand witnesses might share a warning and serve as a warning to each of us this morning. When God is doing something in your life for the first time, you too might not recognize God's actions on your behalf. You too might not see God working in your life. Even though he's told us that he would, and we know that he does. Those who had been so close to Jesus didn't understand what had happened on that first Easter morning. Well, you and I understand completely. They didn't understand what had happened, whereby we hear the story this morning and we both see and understand. By the grace of God, there's a sense that we know more about the truth than those that witnessed the very first Easter. Peter and John arrived at the tomb after a breathless run. Interestingly, John, who probably was the younger of the two, arrived at the tomb first, but he only looked in. He didn't enter the tomb. But when Peter arrived, he did exactly what we would expect him to do. He barged right in with no hesitation. Moments later, John would venture in, and both disciples saw the same thing. They saw the linen cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' body lying there in their natural folds as though the body had simply evaporated. There was no evidence that the body had been removed. The Rye Standard Version that, that we use here says that the cloth that had been on Jesus' head was rolled up and placed by itself. But the word that's used in the Greek 
actually means folded. This is an interesting connotation. A few years ago, I found something interesting on the internet. At mealtime in the home of the New Testament church, or during that time, as the servants stood there <coughs> serving those that ate, there was a way that they would know when the meal was over. They could clear the table. If the master, for whatever reason, might leave the table during the meal, he would simply toss his napkin on the table. That was a sign that he'd return and finish the meal. But if he finished eating, he would fold his napkin and place it on the table. What Peter and John witnessed when they entered the tomb on that first Easter morning was that Jesus' work here on earth was finished. He had done what he come, had come to do. He had finished the work his father had set him to do. And now it was time for his followers to do the work that they'd been prepared for. The linen was folded. <coughs> Jesus' work was finished. And now his servants could go to work. One of the other things that we see in this morning's lesson is found in verse 8. It says, finally, the other disciple, that's John, also went inside. He saw and he believed. John saw the bear across lying there in their folds, and suddenly he understood what had happened and he believed. And one what the Old Testament prophets had foretold that convinced him. It may not even be the words that Jesus had spoke that caused him to understand and believe. But he believed what he saw. Now Mary had been the first to arrive and discover the empty tomb, but it was Peter who was the first to enter the tomb. It was John who loved Jesus so much. It was the first to believe in the resurrection. It was his love for Christ that gave him the eyes to see the signs and the mind to understand the meaning. At a concert, you can hear and know when a conductor of an orchestra is in love with the music of the composer whose work he's conducting. Love is a great interpreter. Love can grasp the truth when intellect is left groping and uncertain. There's a story of a young painter who brought a rendition of Jesus to Gustave Doré for his evaluation. Doré studied the painting for a long time. Then he said, you don't love him, or you would paint him better. We can neither understand Jesus nor help others to understand him unless we've given our hearts to him as well as our minds. We have to love him with our whole heart. Then the two disciples left the tomb. And Mary, who had returned, was left there all alone. Our lesson tells us that Mary was standing there weeping. I'm sure that she was filled with all kinds of emotions. Not only was Jesus dead, but now his body was missing from the tomb. And finally she ventures into the tomb herself, and there she finds two <coughs> angels. Mary is still filled with grief, but she dares to enter the tomb, and there she encounters two heavenly messengers. But they have no message. Only questions. They aren't there to proclaim Jesus' resurrection. Rather, they ask Mary why she's crying and who it is that she's looking for. And Mary said, they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where he is. Apparently, the angels had no answer for her. So she turns to leave. And this is when she encounters someone else. Maybe she didn't recognize him because her eyes were filled with tears. Maybe she didn't recognize him because she wasn't expecting to see him. Maybe she didn't recognize him because it was dark in the tomb. Obviously, this man was the caretaker. Another incorrect assumption. And Mary said, if you've taken the body, please tell me where he is. But he didn't respond. 
Mary must have then turned back to the man, looked into the tomb, when she heard that single word, Mary. And she responded with the single word, Master. Why had Mary failed to recognize Jesus? She was still blinded by her own tears. Her sorrow was brought about by a sense of loneliness and loss and desolation. What is it that we all weep over the loss of a loved one? Not that they've gone on to be with God, but we weep for ourselves. That's natural and inevitable. Yet we can never allow our tears to blind us from God's glory. The other lesson that Mary failed to recognize Jesus is that she was looking in the wrong direction. She couldn't take her eyes off the tomb, so she had her back to Jesus. When, when sorrow comes, we must never let tears blind our eyes from God's glory. It we must never fasten our eyes on the grave and forget the heavens. When Mary recognized the risen Lord, we, you can only imagine the joy that rushed through her. She immediately wanted to fall at his feet and embrace him, but Jesus said, Do not hold on to me. And then Jesus told Mary to go and tell the disciples what she had seen. And we see Mary being sent back to the disciples with a message that what he had so often told them had actually taken place. After three days, he had risen from the grave. And Mary rushed off to tell the disciples, I've seen the Lord. The risen Lord's on the move, and now Mary needs to be on the move. The scriptures go on to tell us that Mary went back to the disciples and Jesus had instructed her to do and told them what Jesus had said to her. Remember the encounter that Jesus had with the madman in the graveyard? The man had been possessed with a legion of demons and Jesus cast the demons out, sent them into a herd of pigs, and then ran off a cliff and drowned himself. When Jesus and his disciples were about to leave that, that area, the man wanted to go with Jesus. But Jesus told the man to go back to his village and tell the people what God had done for him. I described that man one time in a sermon as the first missionary in the New Testament. He had been sent by Jesus to proclaim the good news of Christ to the people. As we look at John's gospel this morning, we might consider Mary as the New Testament's first evangelist, the first preacher. Why might I say that? Mary was the first person sent by Jesus that was given the gift of witnessing his resurrection. And her message to the disciple contained two major elements of any good sermon. She said, I've seen the Lord. And here's what the Lord told me to tell you. Folks, that message will preach. For Mary, seeing was believing. But for Mary, a vision of the risen Lord was also a commission, a vocation, an assignment from the risen Lord to go and tell. The last words we have from Jesus before he ascended to heaven to be with his Father is found in the final chapter of Matthew's Gospel. It's the familiar words of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go and preach and teach and baptize all people. It would seem that from the very moment of Jesus' resurrection, his message to his followers, to those who had seen him, was to go. Go and tell others what you've seen and heard. We're not told how the disciples reacted to Mary's sermon. There's some Sundays when I can relate to that. But apparently there's still a sense of disbelief because the next day when Jesus appeared to his disciples behind a locked door, the scripture tells us they were still hiding in fear. So Jesus did something that Mary couldn't do. 
He came and stood among them and spoke. He told them not to be afraid. He invited them to come and touch his hands inside. The risen Lord overcame the barrier of a locked door to get to his disciples. The Bible tells us that he breathed on them. The life-giving breath of God and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. It was Dylan Thomas, the poet, who said, Men at 40 close doors more slowly. That's true, I know. I'm just past 40. <laughs> but one of the things that I've learned is that the longer you live, the more you learn to be careful about closing doors. You be careful about slamming the doors in someone's face and saying, I'm done with you. Someday you may have to go back and open that door and try to reestablish that relationship that you thought you could seal shut. Part of growing up and becoming wise is learning when you close the door. Sometimes we keep coming back again and again doing the same old stick over and over again, trying to make the unworkable work. But it's wisdom to know when to close the door firmly and when to move on and when not to. Little Kenny Rogers said, you've got to know when to hold them, you've got to know when to fold them. You've got to learn when to risk and put down your bet. And you've got to know when to fold them and cut your losses and close them all the game. For three years, these disciples had trooped along behind Jesus on the Galilean highways and byways. They had listened to his teaching, and they tried to understand, but it wasn't always easy. They had heard Jesus speak of himself as the Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One of God, the Son of Man, who was one with the Father. But on this first day of the week, this all seemed distant to them. It was all a bad dream, a horrible nightmare in the past few days. The trauma of seeing one whom they thought to be the savior of the world beaten and whipped and crucified. Jesus had been sealed in a tomb and Pilate had shut the door on the king of the Jews once and for all. John tells us these men were gathered together probably in the same room that they shared that Passover meal together. The events of the past week had, had plunged them into darkness and now they were huddled together in fear. The same authorities that had killed Jesus might be coming for them next. And so they were behind locked doors. Those faithful disciples had become fearful men who had shut the door of their past to Jesus. It was over. It had been good while it lasted. Now the door was closed and locked. But Jesus was about to do a second amazing thing on that first day of the week. First he opened the door of the tomb and re-entered the world and then he appeared through a locked door. The dark, dark tomb could not hold him, mark in the dark despair of his followers, keep him out. He came back to them, even through a locked door. That's a hope that I trust you find here this morning. The resurrection doesn't simply mean that Jesus rose from the grave. It doesn't simply mean that you and I will see our loved ones when we die. It means that the very first thing that the risen Christ did was to return to those same cowardly and misunderstanding disciples who had so disappointed and forsaken him. He came through a locked door. I say that because you and I are, are gathered today, and some of you may be hiding behind a locked door. Oh, the fire marshal won't let us lock the doors here at the church service. But there may be some here this morning who have locked the door in your heart. Some of you here this morning may be like many of the first century Jews. Jesus wasn't what they expected. Maybe there was a time in your life when Jesus didn't respond to your prayers. 
The healing didn't take place. The answer to your prayer wasn't what you expected, and you, you closed that door of your heart. You just said, Lo, I stand at the door and knock. It's a very familiar painting in the London Gallery. You've all seen reproductions of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. But you may never look closely at the painting. The artist understood Jesus' message to the world. Jesus stands at that door and he knocks, but there's no handle on the outside of the door. The door could only be opened from the inside. The same is true of the door you are. It could only be opened from the inside. The joy of this Easter morning is that Jesus never stops knocking. Unlike the experience with his disciples, Jesus won't force his will on us. He will continue to knock. Our faith as Christians is based on the Easter miracle. Our relationship with God is not based on what we feel or think or even believe. It's based on the fact that the risen Christ comes to us where we are. Where we're hiding and he seeks to enter through our locked door. Where's the risen Christ today? Where are their locked doors? There's Christ. He has opened, he is opening, and he will open any door that's open to him. I don't know why you came this morning. I don't know what it was that you may have been seeking. But I do know this morning that we worship the risen Lord. And because of that first Easter morning, the world has changed forever. Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. <clears throat> Thank you.